Yo, my people out there, how you doing? Good to be with you again. If you know me in any capacity, even just through this podcast, you know that I have no trouble getting pumped about things. I am a highly enthusiastic person, probably is a bit of a downfall. I get a little bit too excited and uh, kind of am the kind of person that says, this is the best thing I have ever done about just about everything. Uh, But this interview seriously is... I think one of the best I've ever done, not because of of me, but because of the person I got a chance to have a conversation with. Um, I've done a number of really fascinating interviews in recent years with all kinds of people and and, and kind of role models and people I look up to in all different fields, but I've never before interviewed a scientist who writes poetry. And this episode is a conversation with Dr. Sam Illingworth, who I connected with recently online. And Sam is an incredibly intelligent PhD-wielding scientist who knows a lot about astrophysics and space and stuff like that, but is also a deep believer in the power of poetry. So this conversation was an absolute pleasure, and uh, I think we all just have so much to learn from what Sam shares on this, so I hope you enjoy listening. This episode has been made possible through the generous support of my Patreon community. I have a few amazing patrons who give a small monthly donation uh, to help me create this work, which is incredibly generous, and I don't take it for granted. If you want to join them, you can do that at patreon.com slash willsmall. Otherwise, if you really want to help support me, the simplest thing you can do is leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or share this around on social media if you get some value out of the Poetic Beings podcast. Well, today I am chatting to Sam Illingworth. He is an academic, so Dr. Sam Illingworth, I should say. And uh, Sam, you this is interesting because you have a job at a university on the other side of the country to me in Western Australia, but I'm actually talking to you on the other side of the world. You're in the UK, which is where I presume you were born and raised, but just uh, could you just locate yourself for me? Where, where did you come from? Who are you? How did you get a job in Australia? How do you introduce yourself when people ask you a little bit about who you are? Cool. All right. Thanks. Well, well, first of all, I'm never Dr. Sam unless I'm talking to the gas board or someone that I'm like seriously peeved <laughs> at. So <laughs> Sam's absolutely fine. Um, but yeah, as you can probably tell from my accent, I am um, painfully British. And um, my brief background is I did a PhD um, in and a master's in the UK. Um, my background's actually in atmospheric physics. But then after that, I kind of realized I was really interested in the intersections between sciences and the arts. And I had a brief period in Japan where I was looking at the relationship between science and theatre, studying under uh, the director, Yukio Ninagawa, as part of a scholarship with the Daiwa Anglo-Japanese Foundation. And then at that point, I kind of realized that I was really passionate about making science more accessible to all people. You know, I'm a white heterosexual cis male. And so I feel very privileged and I feel very privileged to have had the science education that I have and to be able to look at the world through a scientist's eyes. However, I understand that unfortunately for many different reasons, 
science is seen um, to be the preserve of a few rather than the right of many. And so my research now is really concerned with developing dialogue between scientists and non-scientists. And one of the ways in which I do that is through poetry. And my research really is concerned in using poetry as a facilitatory tool to engender dialogue between disparate audiences. Um, in terms of how I was ended up at UWA, so the University of Western Australia, I was um, a senior lecturer at Manchester Metropolitan University and then got offered the role at UWA to head up the science communication unit there with Dr. Heather Bray. And me and my family, um, my wife and my small six-month-old baby were due to fly over yeah. in the middle of April. And then obviously um, the proverbial hit the fan. Yes. And um, so we're, we're in the UK, um, just in, in North Yorkshire at the moment, but um, working remotely because as university campuses are closed, it's just a case of slightly readjusting my day um, so I can deliver um, my teaching online and do a lot of my research. So UWA have been amazing about it. Um, it's been an interesting journey, just slightly early starts, but I mean, time's such a, you know, esoteric concept at the moment anyway <laughs> it doesn't really matter yeah oh man there's there's so many interesting threads here and um i uh, yeah i was pretty um amazed actually when you reached out to me as someone who makes this podcast called the poetry of science kind of bringing these things together uh and then obviously the links with you kind of having having this job at the uni of wa but being in the uk it all actually links together with what i've been doing on my podcast which is basically exploring uh the pandemic uh that we're all experiencing through poetry and so to hear that you've actually been impacted on a personal level in terms of employment and travel and things like that i'm interested in talking about that but also um somebody who's who's making a podcast around poetry is always going to going to make me feel a bit excited and, and want to chat. Um, but yeah, I would just, I'd love to kind of hear for you uh, where, you know, because I definitely feel like there was that point in time in high school when I knew that I was going to be more into the arts and my relationship with maths and science was going to be uh, a, a divorced as early as I could. And so I think you kind of identified it, but often these things are separated or are, are not kind of viewed as the closest friends. Um, but I'm excited to actually talk to somebody who could maybe remedy that relationship from, from where I sit more on the art side. What was the uh, beginning for you of maybe seeing a, a possible connection between these things? Are there moments you can pinpoint where you started to, um, yeah, think about that relationship coming together? What kind of sparked that? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. So similarly in high school, you know, I was academically down a very um, STEM, so science, technology, engineering, maths background. My A-levels were maths, further maths, chemistry and physics. And then I did an undergraduate degree in physics with space science and technology. But I'd always been interested in the arts, you know, being a, a terrible poet, I'm not that much improved now as a, as a young, precocious teenager and, you know, singing and playing in various bands growing up which you know, I still do now. I think they're really the biggest thing for me came um, in my PhD. I was also the president of the theatre society at the university and wow. I was writing a lot of plays at the time. Um, and I was really interested in how we could potentially use theatre as this tool to 
um, talk to different audiences about science. And during that, I kind of realized that, look, this is a, the arts are a really interesting um, tool through which to reach out and which to work with different audiences. And it's a great opportunity for me to be able to continue um, to practice my creative side in that way. I think really though, um, a, a bigger realization has come in the past four or five years for me. So I started the blog that and the podcast that you very kindly mentioned, the poetry of science, the, the podcast has been going for about a year now, but the blog's been going much longer, about five years. Right. And I started that as just a way of um, like an outlet really of a, every week I'll read a scientific research paper and I'll write um, a summary of that work to um, in the form of a poem to hopefully enable new audiences to understand it because there's so much cool science, not just science that's important to society, but just cool science that people don't know about because the language in which it's written is, you know, alienating. So that's why that started. But then I kind of realized that, you know, this is still very much a a one way street. You know, it's me saying, this is something that I think is cool. Um, You read it, you understand it. And then you'll also think that it's cool and that I'm cool. Whereas actually what I've come to realise through my research and practice is that poetry offers so much more than this one-way model of communication. And that actually it's through poetry that we can facilitate this dialogue. So that's that's been the biggest change for me. So to give you an example of that, we did a research project recently where we wanted to talk to um, vulnerable and underserved communities in the UK about their attitudes and understanding of environmental change. So these are people living with severe mental health needs, asylum seekers, refugees. Mm. And these people have got really important views about environmental change. Um, And when we're thinking about mitigation strategies for environmental change, we need to work with these audiences so that we can grant them agency. And also because they've got a lot of expertise that we're, we're not listening to. But the problem is that when we bring together scientists and non-scientists on a topic like environmental change, there can be these perceived levels of hierarchies where mm. hierarchies of intellect, where people think, oh God, I'm not a PA, I haven't got a PhD, so my voice isn't valued here. Whereas, you know, they've got loads of expertise in that particular area just by living in a region. So what I've found is that a great leveler is poetry. And so what we do in, in, in my research is we bring together scientists and non-scientists in different groups and we write poetry together. Wow. And writing poetry together in this way um, creates a sense of shared vulnerability. You know, because once, once you see a professor stand up and read a really crap haiku, you kind of realise, oh, actually, maybe they're all right after all. Yeah. Um, and so what we, what we found is that it's it's a really powerful way to give voice to these audiences. I can give you an example. So we, we worked with this group in um, inner city Manchester. And what we did was we'd just go to these sessions and we'd say, look, what, what areas are you interested in? And then we'd start by writing a poem to explore their areas of interest. Then we'd bring some scientists in to talk to them about the topic that interested them, not the scientist, um, and about how it fa- affected them. And then we'd write more poems about it. And one week they were really interested in talking about air pollution um you know air pollution is the biggest killer in the world it kills about one in ten people it's it's criminally underreported how much damage it does wow um and 
one of the poems that they wrote, I remember it's just so short, but it's so impactful, um, was this. I've never seen pollution, never noticed it. It's always been there, but I'm unaware of it. Just breathing it in. Wow. And exactly right. And like for me and for the other scientists in the room, it was like, wow, that's such an important thing to hear. And like poetry has given permission to people to be able to share their stories. So for me, that's been the biggest change and understanding in my practices in the past four or five years in using poetry as a facilitatory tool rather than just primarily myself as a spoken word artist and a poet. And I feel very privileged to be able to do that. Yeah, that's fantastic. So much of that resonates so deeply with me. Uh, it's been several years now that I've been running spoken word nights and have, well, you know, not as much recently, although we did a digital one last week. But I have felt for so long that there's something about getting people in the room who are incredibly diverse, people from very different backgrounds. I've, I've uh, facilitated poetry events where we've had uh, people who are homeless perform poems, people who are, come from refugee backgrounds perform poems, uh, people who are, yet yeah, white, middle-class, privileged, you know, benefiting from all of those categories like me performing poems. And um, it just feels like it brings people together in a way that few other mediums have the power to. And I'm probably a little bit biased, but what, what I'm hearing in what you're saying is that you're experiencing that same thing, that poetry can kind of level the playing field between uh, academics and, and non-academics and scientists and non-scientists and um, is quite a profoundly connecting experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, for me, it, it, it does exactly those things that you say for, for three reasons, really. It, it, firstly, it gives permission to the non-scientists uh, to share their voice, because if you've got like expertise in an area, but you're not an expert in inverted commas, it can be difficult to to have the courage to talk about it in a field full of experts. Mm. But if you share a poem, no one can correct you for that poem. So, you know, it's a poem, isn't it? So that's a really, really strong starting point. Mm. Secondly, it, it grants permission to the scientists to display an element of pathos. You know, from an early age, scientists are taught to only present the cold, hard facts. Mm. But I just don't understand how you can be, for example, you know, my background's in climate science as well. I don't know how you can talk about climate change without getting upset, angry, yeah. you know, dis dissolute. And po poetry is a really powerful way to give permission to scientists to display that pathos. And then thirdly, it creates this shared sense of vulnerability, like a shared space, a magic circle, if you will, in which um, you're kind of, you're, you're making yourself vulnerable and you're breaking down those barriers of, you know, be it expertise, race, creed, colour, whatever. And you're just in a space together creating something which I think is a really powerful um, thing to be able to do. Yeah, absolutely. Now that's a, that's a great, great summary of um, some of those reasons why it, is, it cuts through and it connects people in really powerful ways. I'm interested just at a, at a practical level in, in some of your process as somebody who obviously, uh, you know, you're, you're deep in the world of science and you've got your PhD and, um, you know, that's obviously where you, you kind of professionally employed. Um, but then you obviously have a creative writing process. And I, I'm interested in just, do, do you kind of find that you have to switch your brain into different gears or do you kind of have to be in different uh, locations when you write? Or how, how do you 
find kind of navigating those different parts of, you know, kind of moving between a creative practice and then what mm. would maybe be viewed as less kind of creative and more clinical in terms of research? That's a really good question. I think that I can only speak to myself personally, but I find that actually I engage exactly the same part of my brain when I'm approaching an empirical study in science and when I'm sat down writing poetry. Um, I, I, I honestly, I'm not meaning this as a plug, but sure. <laughs> it's going to be anyway. I, I wrote a book last year called um, A Sonnet to Science, which looked at um, famous scientists through the age who'd also written poetry and the influence that it had on their lives and research. And I think a really good example is Miroslav Holub. He was a Czech immunologist and poet, who's actually probably better known for being a poet, actually. Mm. And I think you know, he spoke about using the same process is really inviting as he did in doing his research. And you can see that in his poetry because it's very clinical. You know, it's very, I think Seamus Heaney said it's very stripped back. It's very laid bare, you know, a little bit like William Carlos Williams, just very mm. to the point, but like beautifully done. And, you know, I'm really, I'm fascinated by the different parts of the brain that people in, engage when they're doing scientific research or doing a creative process. But what, what I think is that actually poetry is a really powerful way of targeting the incubation period. So, you know, the incubation period is this point that if you're working on a problem, scientific or otherwise, um, and, you know, you just come to a complete impasse because mm. you can't think of a solution. So what you do is you put down your computer, your, your notebook, whatever, you walk away and it comes to you when you're stepping into the shower or walking up the stairs, whatever, doesn't it? The, the answer's mm. like, oh, great. But that's like a really passive approach to the incubation period. I think that writing poetry is a hugely active approach to it. So I really encourage people, like scientists as well, look, if you've completely come to this impasse, stop what you're doing, pick up a pen or your laptop and write a poem about the process instead. Mm. Because you're then engaging the thoughts around the idea, but in a slightly different way. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a really great way of, of combining the two processes. But speaking for myself, I definitely have the same approach to writing poetry as I do to um, doing scientific research. Although honestly, my personal and professional lives and like what I do as a scientist is so combined. <laughs> yeah. It's really different to delineate between the two um, in terms of, am I really a scientist anymore in, in the physical sense? I'm probably more of a social scientist and I've been really fortunate enough to combine um, the, the poetry so much with what I do that I feel very privileged to be able to do so. So certainly it's less of a um, disconnect than other scientists I know who are in, you know, absolute frontier science who also write poetry. Mm. Oh, I think that's all absolutely brilliant. The stuff about the incubation period, I, I just see that so clearly. Um, I often share with people, um, you know, sort of the idea from Julia Cameron's work around the mm. morning pages and, and she yeah. kind of, you know, sort of recommends that whether you're a filmmaker or uh, an accountant, you know, or like whatever your profession is, just getting the words out, getting that kind of um, that kind of brain dump happening, actually helps us to get on the other side of ourselves, uh, where the where the real work can begin. So I think that exactly what you're saying. Just you know, stop being so in your head, or stop kind of blocking yourself, and write a poem, or just just get your thoughts out on the paper, and it will it will help you with whatever your work is, whether you're a, 
a poet, a scientist, a, a bus driver, whatever. So, um, yeah, I'm a big fan of that. So one of the things I've thought, you know, since the early days of um, the world starting to kind of really shift during these times of, of COVID-19, I, I kind of immediately sort of started to think as, as the news started to intensify and, you know, uh, over here in Australia, we started to kind of go on our, our process of increased restrictions and lockdown. I just thought the whole time I was like, man, like scientists are really higher up on the hierarchy of needed careers in the world right now. We need people to be, you know, studying for, for a vaccine and uh, we need kind of, you know, people in those really practical, you know, lab positions um, and, and poets and creatives and artists just doesn't seem as important right now in terms of like the more pressing, pressing uh, issues that we're facing. But the more I thought about it, you know, the more I thought obviously that's, that's kind of ridiculous and at any point in time, whatever we're going through in the world or in our own families or personal lives, we need the arts to give us a language for what we're experiencing, the kind of real depths and heights of what it means to be human. Um, so, you know, I'm interested just in, in your thoughts on how science and, and the arts could kind of be in relationship more as we navigate the kind of reshaping of the world uh, as mm. we go through this kind of really unique moment in time. Yeah, just any thoughts you have around that in general or in particular around how kind of ordinary people like me or others might be able to begin to sort of strengthen those connections between the kind of really highly uh, practical kind of research positions that we need right now as well as our, our, our human need for the arts and culture. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, if we look back in, into you know, antiquity, like certainly the ancient Greeks and other ancient civilizations, there wasn't really a demarcation between the arts and sciences. You know, it was they were studied together. It was only really from Aristotle and beyond that people started to have this split, this mutual exclusivity between sciences and the arts. And then even later still, not really until the 1800s, let's say, when um, the t- um, scientists became formalized and people moved away from being amateurs or, you know in that real corinthian spirit of amateurs that people thought oh i have to either pigeonhole myself as an artist or a scientist or whatever profession i am so i think that there's actually a historical precedent for the two being much more joined up mm. and i think that certainly the arts and the sciences a lot of the work i do is around convincing people that they're not mutually exclusive entities but rather they're complementary disciplines that help us to better understand the world and the way in which we live. I think you hit on quite an important point there with science in that I'm not trying to say that um, science is a super easy thing that can be done by everyone because obviously it requires a certain level of training to do some a certain specific skill set of it. However, there's a danger sometimes, I think, that science has become, um, you, you know, the... the the right of a few or the privilege of a few rather mm. and it's very very gatekeepery in that you know people are told well you haven't got the skills to do this so you're not allowed into this conversation whereas actually it's absolutely vital for scientists to work with other members of society in the development of their research and research governance and i think that the arts plays an incredibly vital role in helping to bridge that gap um, in helping to create frameworks through which non-scientists and scientists can work together 
you know, we need to only look at COVID-19 as an example. Yes, the scientists are going to come up with the solutions like in terms of a vaccine, but unless everybody implements the strategies that are given by behavioural scientists, etc., then there's no point. Mm. And if you don't involve members of the general, if you don't involve various publics in the development of those strategies, then there's no agency for those various publics to actually put them into action. And there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution. You know, what works in Australia won't work in the UK, won't work in Russia, won't work in Mongolia. You need to work with those various publics and you need to say to them, okay, look, this is what we recommend, this is what the science is saying. However, we understand that for cultural reasons, for societal reasons, for, um, you know, ethical reasons, for economic reasons, these are the other boundaries that are in place. We need your input so you can tell us what is and what is impossible. And when you do that, you, you grant agency to everybody so that they feel as though they're part of the solution. You know, climate change is another perfect example. Just telling people to do something doesn't work. Mm. However, if you work with different communities and say to them, look, what do you want to do? What will benefit you? that that does work i go to if let's say i'm working with a community group who are in um you know a lower socioeconomic bracket where they're struggling to put food on the table they don't have the mental capacity to bother thinking about their carbon footprint like and if i go in there like with white privilege being like you need to do this you need to do that that's just not going to work as a message what i need what we need to do is we need to talk to that community find out what their needs and experiences are and how any potential climate change mitigation strategies can be utilised to help them. You know, for example, like growing vegetables, is that something that we can work with them to help provide them as well as addressing their carbon footprint? And I think that reconnecting science and society is vital for the advancement of the human race. And I think that the arts, for the reasons we've discussed previously, are a really powerful tool that enable us to bridge that artists as well are so au fait with how to do this um that working with them is like a necessity of of scientists I'll, I'll give you another example i've got colleagues who work in artificial intelligence and if you think about you know uh, driverless cars if you're mm. program like at some point you need to program the car to tell you what happens if there's if the car's about to collide with a pedestrian does the car plow into the pedestrian and kill the pedestrian and save the driver? Or does it crash the car, save the driver and kill the pedestrian? So speaking to those experts in, in science, they, they've told me that this isn't something that they're trying to do. This is, these are ethical dilemmas that they need to work with other people like poets, like artists on in order to do that. So there's, needs to be a much greater joined up thinking between these different disciplines and a reconnect between science and society. And I truly feel that the arts has a very, very powerful role in, in engendering that reconnection. Mm, that's brilliant. I, um, yeah, I recently watched um, 2040. Not sure if you've seen it, a movie by an Australian guy, um, Damon Gamu, who uh, it's, it's a, a film about, you know, looking uh, 20 years into the so future. It's uplifting. It's really uplifting. Really, but yeah. ex exactly yeah. what you were just saying, you know, taking the the research and, and looking at what the science, you know, has t told us and, and also what the best is kind of available out there, but then communicating it 
um, through this beautiful filmmaking and storytelling uh, in a way that actually does engage people who just often feel overwhelmed or helpless. It's certainly how I felt watching it. So, yeah, I love, I love that picture of the relationship between uh, the necessity of, of good research and science, but then the, the way that uh, the arts can actually bring that to life in terms of uh, communicating more broadly across different cultures and societies. Um, I'm, a, I'm a fellow dad. I've got two kids, and, and so it's awesome to hear that you've got a, a six-month-old, and I'm sure you're not necessarily getting heaps of sleep right now, but uh, <laughs> you know, I'm encouraged thinking about maybe our kids in the future um, we'll have a bit of a remedied relationship. Maybe we can do something to try and help them see the arts and science as connected right from the beginning and do what we can to try and stop some of that kind of unnecessary um, splitting from happening. I would love, Sam, to hear a poem from you if you've got something. You know, you've, you've uh, said yes to being interviewed on my podcast and uh, part of that means sharing a poem. So over to you for that. Yeah, of course. So um, I'd just like to share a poem from my, my blog, really. Uh, so where I said, I, the poetry of science, where every week I read a piece of scientific research and write a poem about it. So this is a really cool piece of research where basically for a number of years, people have hypothesized about how clouds will look on exoplanets. So exoplanets are planets that exist in other um, solar systems other than our own. And they've hypothesized like really amazing things like clouds made out of ruby dust and hazes made out of methane. Um, But then these researchers um, basically created a model based on UK um, parameters, sorry, based on um, earth-based parameters where they basically said that, look, um, no matter what happens in different elements of the universe, you're still going to be guided by basic physics um, so I think that some of the crazier clouds that you're suggesting can't actually exist. But what this has meant is that by doing so, they're able to create a cloud atlas that can then enable us to better understand what the clouds look like on these planets and how we can correct for them when we're trying to look at the planets with telescopes. So actually by creating this, it's helped to demystify what lies beneath and expose us to even more fantastical science. Mm. So this poem, it's just a short one, um, is about that research, and it's called Celestial Cloudscapes. Secluded worlds hide secrets from our cold, prying eyes, suffocating starlight in the heat of their embrace. Lost beneath the contrails of a smoggy methane haze, we conjure up impossible visions, draping distant lands in sparkling, precious mists. Ruby clouds dissipate, buried in the plausibility of every grain of sand, their shimmering mirage dispelled by the coarseness of our modelled reality. Visions fade from view, regurgitated numbers, peeling back secrets, that unnerve the impossible. Beautiful, Sam. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, uh, I'm inspired, inspired by your work. It makes me want to get back into science. And, and definitely people should go and listen to your podcast, The Poetry of Science. It's a fantastic way to, to look at research and, and to hear some great poetry along the way. So uh, thank you so much for giving me, giving me your time. I really appreciate it. Cheers, Will. Thanks very much. I really appreciate being asked on to your equally excellent podcast as well. Awesome. 
Thanks, Sam. Well, when you uh, when you do end up getting on a plane over here, I know that might not be for some time, but uh, if you do that and then end up on the east coast at some point, make sure you hit me up and we'll have you come and come and perform at a poetry night over here. <laughs> Cheers, well. What a fascinating human being doing incredibly interesting work. Go and have a listen to the Poetry of Science, Sam's podcast. And um, yeah, I hope you got some value out of that conversation. If you are a fan of the Poetic Beings podcast, I would so love it if you would leave a a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or share it on your social media or send me a message. I would love to hear from you if you listened to this and got something out of it. Thanks again to my Patreon community and sending big love to you wherever you are.